morning. So for the last few weeks, we've been walking through the last part of Christ's life. You know, we looked at the uh, triumphal entry one Sunday. Christ announces to everyone that he is the Messiah riding upon the donkey. As is the tradition of royalty in uh, Israeli history, we looked at uh, his announcement to the chief priests and scribes, which got their attention that this is a man that needed dealt with. Uh, the children and the people were singing out Hosanna, the son of David, and so forth. Um, then on Good Friday, we saw him uh, suffer the consequences of such notoriety, being nailed to the cross, paying a penalty. Uh, you know, we sing the song this morning, you know, where else will we go for the words of eternal life? One of my favorite passages out of John 6, Jesus showed us the way by going to the cross. That's how we get eternal life. And then on Easter Sunday, we looked at the resurrection, that the story had not ended, that Jesus is not in the tomb, but that he has risen. And we saw the women coming to the tomb early in the morning to uh, apply spices, burial perfumes upon the, the body, only to be confronted with some angels telling them, who are you looking for? You know, he is not here. He is risen. That is so exciting. And then the question came up, um, what does Jesus do now? Where is he? What is he about? And so this morning, we're going to just take some, a moment and we're going to uh, look through the book of Hebrews. We're just going to hopscotch to different passages and get an idea of what exactly Christ is doing at this point. Uh, the book of Hebrews is unauthored as far as we know. Uh, some people surmise that maybe the Apostle Paul wrote it and left it anonymous, but that doesn't really fit with his theology. But whatever and whomever wrote it, it is a book that is, nothing, if nothing else, a, uh, just a, a praise to the Savior. It's like one continuous long sermon full of uh, songs of praise, uh, thoughts of praise, but some very specific theology as to what Christ is doing. So after the resurrection, how many days did he walk around and show himself to people and prove that he had indeed uh, defeated death? You know, yeah, 40, 40 days he's out there and he's appearing to his disciples. He's appearing to the women. He's appearing to all of the people that followed him. It's, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 goes down quite a list and he demonstrates that he is alive. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 1, he is gathered with his disciples and some others besides on the Mount of Olives. And he gives his famous last words, his great commission recorded in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and also Acts 1, 8. And at that point, he ascends to the clouds, it says. And while the disciples were still watching him, an angel draws their attention and they are given instructions and so forth. And the apostles then wait for the Holy Spirit's arrival in Jerusalem, which happens on the day of Pentecost. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and Christian history is begun. The church is inflamed with zeal, with excitement, and Gentiles are welcomed gladly into the fellowship, though somewhat reluctantly at times by their Hebrew brethren. So, what is Jesus doing since he ascended? So in Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 1, let me read. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his son. So the book of Hebrews is written, it's a later book. It's not written like the gospels soon after Christ uh, ascended into heaven. This is a while down the road. So he's saying that God is still speaking to us through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That gives us a look at a little bit of what Christ's activities were before incarnation. He was the creator of the world. God worked through his person to do that. He is, and this is in the present tense, so it means currently, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now that's telling us what he's doing right now. He currently, one of the things that he is doing is he's upholding the universe. He's keeping the laws of nature, the uh, exact layout of all the things that were created in working order. He has an ongoing job. Not only did he create the world, he sustains the world. I keep a little laminated card in my Bible that gives a prayer prompt for me that tells me that God is our creator, he's our sustainer, he is our protector, and he's our provider. Um, and Christ follows along in that. He is sustaining the universe. He upholds it. After making purification for sins, that is dying at the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So where did Christ go after he ascended? He went right into the presence of his heavenly father, and there he sits. And this is not the only reference to that. If we want to, we could go to Romans chapter 8, and everyone knows Romans 8, the early verses, where it says that there is uh, now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's one of those handy verses we pull out when we've done something we know we shouldn't do, and we're feeling incredibly guilty as we come into prayer with the Father and then the Spirit sometimes gives us this encouragement. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? It's not that our sins have lost the power of condemnation. It's because that penalty for those sins have been put upon the cross already uh, by God on his Son so that they are now atoned for, right? But if we go to the back of Romans 8, he says, what then shall we say to these things? Paul is writing, if God is for us, who can be against us? Another favorite one of our verses, right? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Uh, it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. And then here we go. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and then who is at the right hand of God. So we're going to see like three or four references this morning that it seems to be that Jesus's place after his ascension is to stay near his father. The question then arises, what is he doing there? What is his point of being there? Well, let's take a look at Hebrews 4, jump ahead a little bit. In Hebrews 4, we're going to look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest, and the concept of priesthood has always been part of the Christology of Jesus of Nazareth, but he says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So one of the things that the Savior is doing is he's not only sitting by the Father, but he's making intercession for us. He's doing the things that maybe an attorney might do. We could call it an advocacy uh, he is our advocate. Uh, we can come close to the throne because of what Jesus did. If you remember the story on the crucifixion day when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says it is finished, well, what happens? There are several things that happens, but one of the most important things that happens is in the Holy of Holies in the temple, the veil rips from top to bottom before no one was allowed to go into the presence of God, right? Except for whom? the high priest, right? The man in the Aaronic priesthood, the Levite, who is a descendant of that man, Aaron. And once he had been purified and gone through all of the steps of purification, and he would be representing the nation of Israel, he would once a year on Yom Kippur go right into that Holy of Holies to where the Ark of the Covenant was in the presence of God. Now, because of Christ's death on the cross, that has been opened. There's no longer a barrier between us and the Father. His presence is not limited to the locale of the temple, which is good news because the temple doesn't even exist anymore, right? Uh, according to Paul's writings in Corinthians, we are the temple of God. Our bodies are the temple of the Lord. And Jesus is the high priest. And so instead of coming into us or coming near us on one day of the year to offer uh, purification, to offer atonement, we can go to him. And I love this verse, you know, many Christians memorize this verse because it speaks such a great truth. We have a great high priest. And the thing is, we don't go through the purification ceremony. You know, at least I don't start my prayer day by having a group of men uh, strip me down and wash me in the morning and put all kinds of perfumes on my body and check me for any bodily defects. Thank goodness. Uh, you know, I can just go straight into prayer with him. I can be anywhere in my life, in my day, and pray to the Lord. Amen. Isn't that awesome? We sometimes take that so for granted. We don't realize what a privilege it is. And the only reason it works, the only reason that we don't get zapped, like the well-intentioned people who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant in the day of David into the newly created place for him, is uh, because the holiness of God is appeased by the sacrifice of Christ himself. And he says, we have this priest who is tempted like we are, yet he's perfect without sin. Thus, with confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace in time of help. So that's another thing that Christ is doing. Let's look at Acts, or Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, hold on to your uh, Bible belts because this is going to be a little bit deeper than where we've been so far. But uh, in chapter 7, the whole point of this section of the writer of Hebrews soliloquy about Christ is that he wants us to understand that Jesus is of the priesthood order, not of Aaron, like all other former high priests had been, uh, but that he's of the priesthood of Melchizedek a strange, somewhat secretive person that we see in the Old Testament in the day of Abraham. But we'll just jump right into it in verse 1. 
in chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham, he apportioned a tenth part of everything he has. First, by translation of his name, he is the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. He's also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of Man, he continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek, when he appears in the Old Testament, we're not told a whole lot about him by introduction, but the author of Hebrews gives us some insights and says, wait a minute, this man, this, this priest, he doesn't have a father, doesn't have a mother, he wasn't born, nor did he die. So what we were led to believe is that he was actually an epiphany. He was an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament before his incarnation. And now Jesus is of that same order. We're going to jump down to verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that is the priesthood that the Jews were used to for all their centuries, Uh, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? We wouldn't need Melchizedek if the law and the priesthood of Aaron had been sufficient. That's what he's saying. Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. What tribe was Jesus part of? He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't qualified to be in the Aaronic priesthood, was he? Oh, he's of the tribe of Judah. Uh, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And we only know of one person who has an indestructible life, who beat death, who rose from the grave. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews is obviously trying to get us convinced that Jesus today is a great high priest. He's of the priesthood of Melchizedek. When somebody who is of Jewish uh, beliefs would have read this book and they saw that first part that we were looking at in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, it would have been a very natural question for them to say, wait a minute, how could he be a great high priest? He is of the tribe of Judah. And well, the way that works is because he's not in that priesthood line. He's in the separate priesthood of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former command is set aside because of weakness and uselessness. That's the old priesthood. Um, And then verse 20, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is a quote from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever. Jesus has got the promise of the father that God will not change his mind. Jesus will always be a priest. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So there is another function that Christ has. And we might say, what covenant, what promise does Jesus guarantee? He guarantees the new covenant. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 will go through a repetition 
of what that new covenant is. So the new covenant basically is an agreement between God and his people, uh, Jeremiah 31, that tells us that blessings are going to come throughout the whole world because of the act of this covenant maker, this covenant keeper, who is Jesus Christ. He is the guarantor of that. And the only reason he can be the guarantor of that is because he fulfilled the covenant requirements by going to the cross, by offering his body as a substitution for ours, by taking upon himself the penalty of all of our sins, because as a perfect man, he could do so. He is the second Adam, as it says in Romans, right? And because of his perfection, he can take the sins of you, your sins, my sins, and put them on himself, the ones in the past, ones in the present, ones in the future. He's the guarantor of that covenant. It's the best warranty you're ever going to find, right? Um, then he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now, this is important. Yeah, sometimes we read right over that. If you've read Hebrews several times, you say, well, Jesus holds his priesthood forever. That's important. He lives eternally. Why does he need to say that? It is my belief that this is a reference to the Jewish people who would immediately have thought of, well, I wonder what's going on. If we look back in Numbers chapter 35, where there is the uh, citing of the whole story of the cities of refuge, which we didn't cover when we deep-dived into Deuteronomy. Uh, we just didn't have time. But if I can just touch on it briefly, the cities of refuge were a series of cities that God had the people of Israel establish, three on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west side. And it was put there so that if a person accidentally killed someone else, and the key word there is accidentally, uh, so look, if you look at verse 16 in chapter 35, it says, but if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. That was part of the law. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. That is the law. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death, he died, he's a murderer, so forth. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death when he meets him he shall be put to death part of the law's qualifications for an avenger of blood is that you're a family member of someone that was unjustly killed by another hebrew and you have the right then to hunt that person down and exact vengeance in the name of the law and there was nothing that anyone could do to that avenger of the law he would not be held punishable for that uh, but if you drop down a few more verses in 22, but if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood. So the idea is just that you had a, a situation where we would call it involuntary manslaughter. You're out and you're doing chores, you know, you live on a farm and as you swing the axe, the blade comes off of the wooden handle and it hits a neighbor and that neighbor dies. You didn't intend for that to happen, but death happened anyway. Now, the avenger of blood law still stands. His relative can come after you and require your life for his, right? Tooth for tooth type of idea that you see in the law. 
But it says here, if it is involuntary manslaughter, the congregation of Israel, the local uh, rulers, will judge between you and the avenger in blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue that manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall, uh, shall restore him to the city of refuge. So he is then required, if he wants to stay alive, to get to one of those cities where it's called the city of refuge and stay in its boundaries if he wants to avoid having vengeance taken out upon him, right? And it says, but if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled and the avenger of blood finds him outside those boundaries of the city of refuge and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of his blood. For he must remain in the city of refuge until the, what? Until the death of the high priest. You see, that's your golden ticket. That's how you stay safe, is the high priest himself will be alive, and he is your guarantor of safety. Now, do you want the high priest to be a 25-year-old new high priest if you have to go there? Or do you want him to be an old curmudgeonly man like me if you have to go there, right? That's your safety valve. That's it. But when we're looking back at this priesthood that Jesus is part of in chapter 7 of Hebrews, we're told that he's a priest forever. When we sin against the Lord, and any sin is against the Lord, we know because we've already walked through the whole story of Jesus on the cross, that sins require vengeance, blood, punishment, judgment. And God is within his parameters, according to the law of the universe he created, to make us exact payment that could cost us our lives. Jesus' function, now that he has risen, is he stands by the Father, and when you or I sin, he's right there to present his bona fides, okay? His nail-pierced hands, the slit in his side, and he says, Father, David's forgiven. No blood is going to be required of him, ever. This sin is separated. And then we can jump to Psalms and talk about how the our sins are taken away from us and, you know, we're washed as white as snow and so forth. It's true, but because of what Jesus does for us now. You remember the story of Job when the sons of God showed up in front of the Lord's throne and they said, consider your servant Job. And, they, and Satan complained that God was giving Job special favor. And this, this arrangement came about where Satan could plague Job and make his life miserable, right? And all he couldn't do was require his life. But God ultimately protects him. But the atonement for those sins, the atonement for your sins and my sins, the challenge of Satan to maybe say, you know, consider Dave, Father. The only reason that he serves you is because Jesus just stands in front of him and says, no, afraid not. According to 1 Corinthians, he has been bought with such a high price. I bought you. I paid the price for you. 
when I went to that cross, I was thinking of you. And you say, well, how could he think of all the people of all times at that moment? Because he's God. We already looked at how he's the creator of the world, right? He's the sustainer of the universe. That's what he's doing right now. He certainly knows the people that he takes care of. God told us that. Jesus talks about how he knows the numbers of the hairs on our head. He knows your name. And Jesus goes to work for you. For it was fitting, verse 26 of chapter 7, that indeed we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Is this the Christ that we saw on Good Friday? Hmm. In some ways, he is. He's always been holy. He's always been innocent and unstained. But he didn't look like it that day, did he? He took a brutal beating. He took many injuries. He took separation from his father for us. And now, as our great high priest, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is dressed in resplendent glory. He is the man that we think of him as today, person who cares about us, who loves of us. And he says he has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices on a daily basis. First, for his own sins, that's what the old high priest had to do, was make atonement for their own sins. And then for those of the people... Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the world of the oath, um, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So another thing that's happening with Christ is that this price on the cross was paid once for all. I remember so many times taking kids on special events as a youth pastor. And the speaker, the event would have the band, somebody would share the gospel and say, anybody who's sitting out there that would like to ask Jesus Christ as their savior, and you feel that God is touching you to do that, why don't you come forward? And time after time, I would see kids who I knew had given their life to Christ already, just want to make sure. I'm just going to, just don't want to risk anything. I want to go forward. And you know, they're so sincere. It was hard for me to just, you know, keep them back. But sometimes they'd get away from me and they'd go up front and, you know, the speakers would be so excited, you know, hey, Aaron's up here today and we're so excited and Aaron, tell us about how you became, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the Bible tells us that Jesus died once and for all. We hide our life in Christ when we become a Christian. We take upon ourselves the sacrifice he made for us we take the ministering of his efforts as a great high priest upon us as worshipers of God, and it's done once for all. He doesn't have to keep offering himself over and over and over. He's done it. Just the old priest did it that way. In the old Aaronic priesthood, Whenever you sinned, you had to bring in your goat, your sheep, your turtle dove, whatever it was that you were sacrificing today, and they would be given those animals to the priest, and the priest would kill them right in front of you, and their blood would be taken, and in some cases it would be sprinkled, right, on you, signifying your forgiveness, but not with Christ. If you miss the crucifixion, 
If you're sitting here this morning and you're not old enough to have been at Golgotha on that morning 2,000 years ago, it's not going to be repeated. I'm sorry. It just isn't. The Bible tells us that this priesthood, this Melchizedekian priesthood that Jesus belongs to, was done once and for all. It's going to last forever. Go to chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There it is, the third time that we are told what Jesus is doing, where he is at. He's a minister in the holy places. And then he's going to contrast as you go down through chapter 8 how the uh, old priest would minister in the tabernacle in the tent of meeting and how all of the different objects in the tabernacle, the table of showbread and so forth, uh, were copied and they were exactly done according to what Moses had seen when his encounter with God. But that this new priest, he doesn't need that. He doesn't have to do all those things because he's not continuously ministering sacrifice for you and for me. It was done. It's over. We have a new life in him. Jump to chapter 10 of Hebrews. We're going to look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never be the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. We don't need to do that. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is reminded of sins every year, and so forth. In other words, every Passover, when the people of Israel would bring their, their animals to the temple or to the tabernacle, depending where they are in Israeli history, they were reminded of their sin. They were very conscious of the fact that certain animals were required to atone for certain sins. I don't know what you would have to do to bring a bull to the temple. Maybe it just indicated that you were wealthy enough to do that. But there were people who felt very deeply their separation from God. But since Christ offered himself, Truly, those who follow God are not conscious. They're not going to be in that boat where they are thinking about what's separating them from God. Instead, we should be very well aware that we have had our sins atoned for. I'm going to jump through chapter 10 down to um, verse 18, it looks like, or 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... That's our ticket, by the way. Heaven help the person who doesn't take advantage of the salvation offered by Jesus Christ while you're still in this world. One of the easy things about doing a funeral for my own sister tomorrow is that her whole family has such a relationship with Christ. As soon as we got the phone call, we knew immediately where she was. She's in a much better place. We say that, that sometimes sounds so cliche-ish. But we know that. We know that. Because she had taken advantage of the free gift of salvation offered by Jesus. We enter into the holy places by how? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened up for us through what? Through that curtain that we talked about at the beginning. That is through his flesh. 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's who we are to God the Father because of our relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. An amazing truth. We as believers, when we come together and we worship, and we have community, as Greg mentioned, with one another, when we confess our sins, when we go through baptism, when we have that special relationship with the Lord, we have our entryway paid that when this life is over, we immediately go to a new life in him. And whereas now, today, that may seem like something far and away, you know, we don't really want to focus on that, we can't really grasp that in our mind, the day will come when it'll be your turn. It'll be my turn to be laying in a hospital, to be in a car accident, to have a heart attack, whatever it is. And this life no longer will have a hold on us. And many wonder what's going to happen next. Well, we're told right here. This is what happens next. If Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, when we die from this life, we go into the presence of God because of what he is doing for us in heaven currently, right now, right? And he continues and says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, if Jesus is doing all this for us, we don't have to be busy about seeking on our own salvation. It's not up to us to do that. What we need to be doing is showing love to one another in the community of God's family and to the community out in the world and let them know the truth about what we understand about Jesus not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as the author Hebrews says, as you see the day approaching. We have to come together. We're supposed to be an encouragement to one another. We're supposed to challenge one another to love each other and to good works. This was so important in the day when Hebrews was written especially the world was a dark place. It was a dangerous place for Christians. Um, we were just reading at our retreat over this week in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, it's a book about suffering, about having anxieties and fears because of what the world may do to us. But when we walk with the Savior, when we walk with him, it doesn't matter. Jesus is the one who leads us and guides us. He's the one that's already gone ahead of us to pay the penalty and he's the one who is currently sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's making atonement for us. He's upholding the universe. He is making mediation for us. He is our advocate, and nothing, nothing can touch us. This frees us up for doing the work of God. Hopefully that's what we're doing. One other thing that I just want to touch on real quickly is found in Matthew 28. We kind of already mentioned it today. But it's called the Great Commission. It's also in Acts 1.8. But in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus is getting ready. He hasn't quite gone to the Father yet. He's getting ready to do that. He's going to ascend to where he's going to be from now on. But he says to his disciples, 
that he wants them to have these what's called final words for them to uh, follow. And we usually make it part of what we are about as believers. He says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them and he saw them and they worshiped him, but some doubted and Jesus came and said to them, all authority. And this is something that will carry on for him once he goes to heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, what do you have to worry about today? What should cause you stress? How much pain do you fear? Nothing like what your Savior took for you. Because of what he did, all authority can go to him. So when you pray to this great high priest as described in Hebrews chapter 4, you're praying to the guy that has the ability and the desire to help you to make life the way that he wants it to be for you. And he says, because of that, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always for how long? To the end of the age. Which basically the author of Matthew, the the disciple, and the author of Hebrews are in agreement on this. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together as you see the day approaching. What's the day? And the author of Matthew says, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What age? They're both referencing one event, that Jesus is going to return. He's not done with his uh, work for the Father, right? There was the first incarnation, and someday, and I think it will be soon, there will be a second incarnation. He'll be coming down as he is in power and strength. And that's a story for another day. But we're supposed to be waiting for that, looking forward to that. And what are we supposed to be doing while we wait? Making disciples. That's the imperative. Go make disciples. There's a story told of Winston Churchill in the middle of World War II, if you're not familiar with him. He is prime minister of Britain very interesting character. I love to read things that he has written. One of my favorite historians, but he was also like the head man. You know, everybody knew who Winnie was. Anyway, all of the uh, RAF flyers were gathered to get ready to do a mission where they would fly bombers over Germany. It was a rainy day, uncomfortable, people standing in the mud, but wait, the prime minister was coming to speak And everybody was kind of interested in what he was going to say because he had a reputation for being rather witty and uh, they just wanted to see him. He was an important man. And so up he comes and he's got his uh, flight cap on and his cigar and his big jowls and his uh, overcoat. And he sits on the platform and there's all kinds of, you know, prelim stuff. And he's just going to give a word of encouragement, a rally to the troops, you know, do their best, and when he gets up front, what's he going to say? And all he says is one word, win, and he sits down. In fact, he leaves. That was it, win. What do you think we were going to do, you know? 
And I think that's what he was thinking. What else would you do? Go win. We're giving you the tools. We're giving you the mission. Just win. I sometimes think that Christ could speak to us from the right hand of the Father to his people gathered on a Sunday morning. And we would expect him to preach a sermon, which would be much more welcome than me doing this. He would come to the front and he would stand here and just look at us. And he would say, win. Make disciples. What in the world else do you have to do? It's not just working. It's not just having fun with family. It's not all the things that we might worry about or enjoy. It's one thing. Make disciples. Christ is the one thing that he is doing now is helping us in the doing the endeavor of letting the world know the story of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to be about. Hopefully this has given us some insight into what Christ is doing now. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He loves us. He's, a, he's sustaining us. And he's given us a mission. And he helps us accomplish it as our great high priest.